0: And welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jane Armate, And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S.
1: Thanks for listening. When discussing the many problems in U.S. healthcare, we eventually have to talk about health insurance. While the number and percentage of Americans without health insurance has dropped to historic lows in recent years, due in part to policy changes that were made early in the COVID pandemic and in part to the Affordable Care Act, many people in the United States are still without insurance or they have coverage that leaves them paying a lot of costs on their own. This situation is getting worse as temporary pandemic measures are now expiring.
0: In the meantime, while some of the largest health systems in the US, the ones that directly provide care to patients, have been seeing dramatic financial losses, some of our country's largest insurers have recently reported record increases in profits 28% from United Health Group, 60% from Alina, and as of this year, 70% for Cigna, to cite a few examples.
1: So, what does this mean for patients and for the healthcare providers that the patients depend on? And are health insurers always the villains in this narrative, or do they have the potential to help remake health and healthcare in this country?
0: Our next guest has a few thoughts on these and other such questions. Sachin Jain is the CEO of Scan Group and Scan Health Plan. He leads the organization's growth, diversification, and emerging efforts to reduce health disparities. We're really looking forward to a rich discussion, Sachin.
1: Welcome, Sachin Jain, to Turn on the Lights. I'm really glad you could be with us. You are what I said earlier is more than a triple threat. There's so much, you know, you've been in so many different sectors and parts of the healthcare system, I think, could spend several hours with you and not by any means exhaust what you have to share. We thought maybe since you are currently heading up an insurance organization, we thought maybe we'd start there, perhaps you take a minute, explain what it is you do, what SCAN is, and then we'll dig in a little deeper to some of your ideas, your hopes, your vision, and maybe even worries about current state of healthcare financing. Sure.
2: Well, thanks so much, Don and Kedar. It's such an honor to be with you both. For the listening audience, Don was actually the person who helped me crystallize what I wanted to do in my career when I was 20 years old. So I owe you a huge debt, Don, and uh, thrilled to be on the show with you. Couldn't have imagined being kind of on a podcast you know, 20 years ago when I was your student. So really honored to be here. So SCAN was originally founded as the Senior Tier Action Network by a group of racially diverse, gender diverse, Community activists in Long Beach, California. We affectionately call them the 12 Angry Seniors because they were quite disturbed with the status quo of aging in the late 70s in Long Beach, California. And is an acronym. It stands for Senior Care Action Network historically. Yes, that's right. We are not a radiology company, contrary to popular belief. We're founded as a Senior Care Action Network and we. We're actually the first and longest running social HMO demonstration project in the 1980s and 90s. Um, I mean, and what, for those maybe, of you yeah. say, what, what do you mean by s- social HMO? What is yeah, that? Yeah. So there was a demonstration project that was run by HICFA, which was CMS's predecessor organization, which really aimed to demonstrate how social determinants of health integrated with medical care could improve clinical outcomes. And so what I like to say is, what is old is new and what is new is old.
0: This was a long time ago, Sachin. This was in the 80s. That This was in the 80s. These 12 individuals were sitting around a kitchen table saying in the 80s, these social factors, these social determinants are interfering with our ability to get better care, better health or have better outcomes. And we need to address those. What was, can you just remind us of maybe an example of something they were, Talking about at that time, that was... You know, what's funny is it's
2: going to sound exactly like the things we're talking about today. They were talking about transportation. And so they created a preferred relationship with a taxi vendor at the time.
0: Because Lyft and Uber didn't exist. Exactly. Exactly,
2: They were, I think, deeply embedded with community organizations to help provide people with a sense of community. I mean, we didn't call it loneliness at that time, but really they were trying to address loneliness in the older adult population of Long Beach, California. They were partnered with Meals on Wheels and other similar organizations to deliver food to people. And so, again, these people were on the vanguard of really thinking about how to integrate medical care and social care and really improve people's outcomes. But, you know, at some point, HICPA actually sunset the demonstration project. And then ultimately, the leaders of SCAN pivoted into the Medicare Advantage space. And at the time, it was called Medicare Plus Choice, today known as Medicare Advantage. And over the course of 20 plus years, grew into to be one of the largest not-for-profit Medicare Advantage plans, uh, now serving almost 300,000 beneficiaries in California, Arizona, Nevada, Texas. We've also, I think, gone back to our roots and have gone closer to care delivery. So we've started four new medical groups. One of them is focused on home-based geriatric care, another focused on home-based palliative care. A third is an instantiation of the PACE program, the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly, and then the fourth is a medical group for people experiencing homelessness. Really inspired by our kind of shared friends in life, uh, you know Jim O'Connell and others who took to the streets to take care of homeless older adults. And as you all know, we have an epidemic of homelessness here in Southern California and an epidemic of loneliness. And so we've been, I think, quite focused on trying to recast this problem, which has largely been seen as a housing supply problem and a medical care problem. And so trying to address that issue as well. Just out of interest.
1: uh, So what's your brief description of what Medicare Advantage is, or maybe what its
2: predecessor was when SCAN, as you say, pivoted? What is the idea here? Yeah, I mean, it's the private administration of a public program is the highest level view of it. And I think when it was created, there was a view towards taking public dollars that were otherwise administered to pay for medical care when people got sick and actually hand it to companies who would hopefully, in the original envisioning of the program, proactively manage the care of older adults. I think identify chronic diseases early, manage them better than they would otherwise be managed, and in the course of that, lower total medical costs. And do that through lower hospitalizations, do it through fewer preventable complications, that was the original vision of the program. It's obviously, I think, blossomed into something a little bit different than that over the, the last number of years. But that's always been Scan's vision around Medicare Advantage and you know, what we've been exquisitely focused
0: on. You say it's blossomed into something different. Sachin. What do you think it's gotten different from that? original? Well, I think
2: if you've met one Medicare Advantage plan, you've met one Medicare Advantage plan. I think that there is now for-profit players, there's not-for-profit players, there are private equity-backed companies that are driving irrational behaviors. There are publicly traded companies that are, I think, driving a lot of skew in the marketplace. And you know, I actually wrote a piece last week in Forbes about some of the, I think, opportunities we have to resimplify the program and have it be focused more on competition around outcomes, as opposed to what I think we've landed on, which is competition around benefits. And so... One of the things I learned about when I was visiting Ron Wyden's office a couple of weeks ago, um, Ron Wyden, of course, is a Democratic senator from Oregon, was that he was involved in standardizing Medigap, which is you know, kind of a predecessor type of health insurance before mm-hmm. Medicare Advantage. These were Medicare supplemental policies. And that industry too had run amok with a lot of confusing product offerings for older adults. And to simplify it, Senator Wyden, and I think it was Pete Stark at the time when they were both members of the House of Representatives, actually proposed a narrowing of options to 10 or 12 different plan designs and really drove competition on price and to a lesser extent on outcomes. But there was really a standardization of benefits. And I think that there's an opportunity to do the same thing in Medicare Advantage, because I do think people seeing some of the profit opportunities here have really, I think, created a lot of skew. We're, of course, not-for-profit. We target a 1% margin every year in order to just really sustain ourselves and continue to grow our organization. But when I worked in publicly traded companies, the target margin was 5%. And those are dollars that I think should go back in the hands of the beneficiaries, not necessarily... In the hands of for-profit companies. I think the question is just, how do you do that? How do you kind of transition from this system that is now very popular? 50% of Americans get their health insurance through Medicare Advantage to kind of a new program, I would say, like Medicare Advantage 3.0, so to speak, that is you know, more focused on the beneficiary, less focused on kind of annual competition around small changes in benefits, and more focused on clinical outcomes. So Sachin, let's go to the positive side of this. We're going to explore later why there's so much
1: disarray, or even anger and suspicion around Medicare Advantage and the insurance companies. But sell me on Scan. Let's say I'm a Medicare beneficiary. Paint me a picture about why I should be interested in having Scan manage this relationship instead of getting paid
2: directly. I think it starts with the defects of the fee-for-service system. You know, the traditional Medicare program, which you know, I had recently had occasion to look at the Medicare new handbook and look at what it covers and what it doesn't cover. And actually, the program, which I think used to maybe 30 or 40 years ago provide people with really, really robust coverage, no longer does that. You know, The cost shares, if you were to get sick, if you needed to go to a lot of doctor's appointments, are actually prohibitively expensive on some level for people who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum in our society who have low levels of disposable income. And so a lot of what Medicare Advantage plans try to do is negotiate with payers, negotiate with providers, negotiate with supplemental benefit providers like transportation companies, food companies, dental companies, audiology companies, to be able to give people a more comprehensive set of benefits at a lower cost. In Southern California, in our classic product, which is our kind of most popular product, your maximum out-of-pocket is 499 dollars That's inclusive of, you know, your hospital co-pays, your primary care office co-pays, your specialist co-pays, and it actually covers a significant share of your drugs at zero copay. So in the end, this is a very high value offering. What you're trading off though is choice. So you're only able to go to the providers that we've contracted with in network. You're not necessarily able to go to providers that we haven't contracted with in network. And you know, I think in some geographies and some plans, that means that you have a harder time accessing services potentially. That said, the other, I would say, real benefit beyond just the the benefits that are kind of listed benefits of the plan is that you have a group of people at SCAN who are looking out for you. We are actively navigating and coordinating your care and trying to be your advocate with the healthcare system, which is something you don't necessarily have when you're a fee for service beneficiary. How do I know you're not just
1: buying on price, restricting my access to the people that charge less? You know, you're telling me if I want to go to Mayo Clinic, I know. I mean, I can't do it with your network, perhaps. I assume they're not in your network. How do I know you're actually protecting me instead of just buying the cheapest provider you can?
2: Well, I think you'd have to look at our provider networks. We have high quality providers. We have the preferred providers in our geography. So I think we've kind of largely contracted with most of the high quality providers in the geographies in which we operate. And if you had a problem accessing those providers, which actually many traditional fee-for-service beneficiaries actually have trouble getting an appointment, getting seen, having someone advocate for you, We will do that advocacy for you with those provider groups. So you have an extra layer of support and protection that you get when you actually become a plan member for us.
0: Why wouldn't traditional Medicare do more of what you're describing? What you're suggesting is a set of additional benefits, advocacy for your beneficiaries in the way you just described. A lot of this, you're doing this in a way that allows, where does the money come from that allows you to do that? And why can't traditional Medicare do a similar thing within the bounds of the existing program? Why do we need a private intermediary to be able to provide this? Some of it is
2: honestly, so, you know, we get a per member per month payment from CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to cover all the medical expenses associated with any individual Medicare beneficiary.
0: This is the way all MA works, right? I mean, more, That's right. More That's yeah, all right. MA works on this single payment per member per month, which is fixed for a variety of reasons. We, the, the Medicare calculates that payment that it offers you.
2: It's based member. on kind of the a measure of health and wellness of the member. So we get paid more for sicker members and less for less sick members. And then it's also geographically adjusted based on the rates in a particular county or geography and then we use those dollars and our leverage our purchasing power on behalf of the beneficiary to negotiate with providers and ultimately you know co- provide the benefits that we provide okay so
1: if it's such a good deal and you're describing a pretty interesting deal which 499 maximum out of pocket i've got you at my side advocating you're contracting with selected providers that you've vetted why has the insurance industry become? I don't want to overstate this and correct me if I'm wrong. So unpopular in America, it's not. Was it ever popular? <laughs> I don't know. But what's your? I mean, uh, what here, I would I tell, know, you nice what guy, tell you is what else? Well, what else? We'll I mean,
2: look. You know, you, it depends on who you ask. I mean, our beneficiaries swear by us. We have a net promoter score, you know, in the 60s. We've got four and a half star rating. We are the highest, which is very know,
0: good. We should be clear you know, with it. Net promoter one, score is very hard to get in the 60s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we last
2: year had the highest consumer satisfaction score in the state of California, where most of our beneficiaries reside ahead of Kaiser. So I think the reason is because we are responsive. We're community centered. We're absolutely focused on the beneficiary in a way that I think people really respond to and really value. It's not a perfect system. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in our healthcare industry right now is we're all toxically positive to some extent where it's not a perfect system. I think we've got a lot of opportunities to be better. I think that plans should not be competing on annual variations and benefits. We should be competing on how well we do at the moments that matter for the people that we serve. But I think there's a whole bunch of beneficiaries who, you know, more than 50% who think that this is the right answer for them. And they are actively walking with their feet into this program instead of sticking with traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Traditional fee-for-service Medicare without a Medicare supplemental policy can bankrupt people. I mean, that's just the fact of how the program is structured. And you know, if you look at what's covered and what's not covered, according to CMS these days or in the traditional Medicare program, people don't have eyes or ears because <laughs> there's no coverage for hearing aids. There's no coverage for vision. They actually don't have teeth either. There's no coverage for dental. And so these are all things that Medicare Advantage plans have, I think, you know, largely provided for. Again, it's not perfect. I think it's a system that has a lot left to be desired. But there are some things that we're doing right for a certain subset of the population that I think really values it. Full disclosure, as you know, for sure. Uh, I've personally been writing with colleagues,
1: especially Rick Gilfillan for the past year and a half, critical of Medicare Advantage. According to some dimensions, most importantly, their gaming of codes in which they're getting, our opinion is they're getting paid more because they put codes in patients' records for which CMS pays more. Yeah,
2: and I would put it back on CMS. CMS has not done a good job, actually, I think, paying attention to what's actually going on under the cover of the program of risk adjustment. So every seven or 10 years or so, they look at it and they say, oops, we overpay for some things. Let's swing the pendulum back, as opposed to what I think should be a very close year-on-year look of provider behavior, health plan behavior around risk adjustment, and like annual modifications to that effect. I think this program got popular, Don, without people realizing it was getting popular. When we were at CMS, we had lots of opportunities to do things on MA. We didn't when we were at CMI together, we didn't introduce a single model focused on MA, kind of thinking it was this marginal program at the time. It was only 25% of beneficiaries. And without anyone like even realizing it, it became the more popular form of Medicare. So I think. We do have to take a harder look at it. I think CMS needs to kind of flip its kind of level of focus a little bit to be more focused on the day-to-day management of and regulation of this industry. So I think there's shared culpability for that, to be quite frank.
1: To put you on the spot a little bit more. So if I gave you a magic wand and you could make three changes, let's say in the MA program now, you think, well, that would be better for the population and perhaps better stewardship of public funds. What would you
2: change? So I think the star rating system to start with is inadequately represents the things that actually really matter to beneficiaries. Maybe take them in and explain the star rating system. Sure. So this is the med- star rating system is the system that CMS uses to actually mm-hmm. measure and rate Medicare Advantage plans. And actually, if you're a higher rated plan, CMS will pay you more as a bonus for delivering on your promise to your beneficiaries. That said what I think is most important to the beneficiary should really be like how we perform at the moments that matter. And actually, Donald, put it back on something you taught me. Well, you and I wrote a, a paper about Kaiser years ago. It was actually a book chapter in Alan Enhoven's book. And in the course of writing that you said, people get overly stuck on this choice issue. Like, do I get to go to Mayo Clinic? Do I get to go to Cleveland Clinic? Rather than focusing on just being better. And if you're going to be in a narrow network HMO, nothing wrong with that if it lowers costs. But then you have to demonstrate that at every stage, you're going to be better than the alternative program. And I would say Medicare Advantage largely has failed to show definitively that we are better than fee-for-service Medicare. We're having these dumb academic arguments like, oh, in this paper by this group, this is better. and this paper by this other group, it shows up as worse. Rather than like, as an industry, if we're entrusted with the public's dollars, we actually just need to be better. Because I'd rather be on this podcast talking with you, Don, about the Medicare Advantage plan that you've chosen because it's better <laughs> rather than being kind of arguing on the margins about whether this program delivers or not. And I would say it's because of how we've set up the rules. So we do not have performance standards for how plans operate when you're diagnosed with a new cancer. And some of the challenges that I think beneficiaries have had has been, hey, when I have a new cancer, I can't get into an oncologist within a reasonable time frame. Now, I would argue that those same issues exist in fee for service Medicare as well. But as an MA plan, as an MA industry, we have to be better. If somebody has a first fall, you know, we show up in the homes of the folks and actually make sure that we're doing all the things we can to prevent that second fall and prevent that hip fracture. When somebody has a death of a spouse, those are critical moments that lead to the down spiral in someone's healthcare. We should show up for people. And again, I think the program has largely been about network and benefits, and it hasn't been about really building strong capabilities in the moments that matter that map to the life experience of older adults. And fee-for-service Medicare hasn't done that either. We better off if health plans are all not-for-profit. I'm not somebody who believes that kind of for-profit is bad and not-for-profit is good. I've seen lots of bad behavior from Not for profits, and I've seen lots of good behavior from for profits. I think you and I have spoken about this, Don. I think the bigger issue that we have is we have a leadership crisis in American healthcare. I think we've got kind of a moral collapse at many different levels. And so I think what we need more than anything is like ethical leadership of these organizations. And frankly, we need a more responsive federal bureaucracy. I mean, the federal Medicare program has changed very little in real terms since it was introduced. There should be 100 geriatricians working at CMS. I think. There's probably zero at this particular
0: moment. I think maybe to take us in a slightly different direction, although we could keep going in this way for a long time, That's an interesting provocation about CMS. Mm. There is a narrative available today, I think, out there that providers are suffering. There, you know, We spend a lot of time talking to hospitals, docs, you can do as well. Lots of red ink in hospital ledger books right now, health system ledger books right now. There's a narrative out there that hospitals are suffering financially downtrodden and that there's plenty of the insurance side of the books and payers at the same time are recording massive profits at the moment. What's the truth here? Help us understand what's going on right now in the industry.
2: I think it's so easy to be both bad at executing on your job in healthcare and still successful. And I think it extends across all sectors. (laughs) You know, when a not-for-profit health system is setting up a venture fund, you know, at a time where it's laying off people and making passive investments in companies. Again, we're completely adrift as an industry. And I think we need to recenter ourselves. And so, you know, everything you're saying is right. But I think that there's a cycle of shame and blame in this industry, you know, where we're constantly pointing the finger at someone else and not necessarily looking at ourselves. I say that having worked in the pharmaceutical industry, having worked in government, having worked in managed care, having worked in the delivery of care, everyone's favorite pastime is passing the buck on blame for why healthcare, Somebody else is at fault here. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest failures of the last two or three decades has been the failure to enforce antitrust regulations in healthcare. We've driven massive consolidation with almost zero benefit to patients.
0: But that appears to be the strategy section. The strategy seems to be get bigger and bigger and bigger. Every health system is busy getting bigger and bigger. Every health plan right now and insurance. Well, so
2: the strategy, as it was originally articulated, I think was to get bigger and bigger and bigger to drive down costs. And right. there's absolutely no proof that consolidation has actually driven down costs. To the contrary, it's driven back to the, the,
0: uh, the other way around, actually.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so I think we've had a failure to really have a rational look at our antitrust enforcement. And I think that the FTC needs to take a hard look at all forms of mergers in healthcare. I'm in the middle of a merger right now that I think is going to be really pro-patient, which is of two not-for-profit healthcare organizations. But it was largely necessitated by the fact that we're sort of like the local bookstore in the era of Amazon on one side and Barnes and Nobles and Borders on the other side. And what I mean by that is even though you know our combined organization, Scan and Care Oregon, will be together an $8 billion organization, we're competing against the Uniteds, you know, the Elevances, the CVSs of the world, whose revenues are in the hundreds of billions of dollars on the other side we've got private equity backed and venture backed entities that are able to do irrational things to erode our market share and to impair our business and so again i think that there's been a real failure to kind of support local entities smaller entities and support their success and so people have no choice at some point but then to kind of come together but i think it's it's necessary in some cases to drive sustainability of organizations. Otherwise, we're just going to be left with five big healthcare companies. I mean, I think that's the world, five big healthcare companies and one or two provider organizations in each geography. And that's the recipe for high costs. You're mentioning
1: uh, private equity and joint venture monies. Explain that part of the dynamic in the healthcare
2: economy right now. What is going on and what is good or bad about and it? People least? are pouring tons of money into the either the acquisition of medical groups, I think, conversion from fee-for-service to value-based models in order to extract as much as they can from you know, the healthcare system. And who are these people that you're talking about? These are venture capital? Venture capital firms, private equity firms, and all shielded with the toxic positivity of like, oh, we're driving innovation and value creation in healthcare without a real critical assessment of what's going on inside. And I think we, you know one of my big frustrations, Don, since I took your class more than 20 years ago now, is that I think we've spent the last couple of decades, trying to make healthcare better. We've built a whole improvement industry, a quality industry, and everything seems to be getting worse, not better. And so I think we've got to take a hard look at what are the next two decades going to look like? And what are the forces that are driving things to be worse and not better? And how do we get a a handle on those?
0: What's your prescription for that? If you're looking today at the next 20 years, what would you include in the new agenda for the next two decades uh,
2: going forward? you know, when I was a medical student, I would have said, oh, we just need better health care policies in this country. And then we introduced two amazing health care policies. And I was fortunate to be part of implementing them and introducing them, you know, was the, the High Tech Act and then the ACA. And then you saw like dystopic stuff come from those two pieces of legislation. And so I think there's a combination of better leadership in American health care, more ethical leadership, more accountable leadership, different board governance, hugely, hugely important, because I think, Most healthcare organization boards kind of see themselves and measure themselves against for profit boards. And when the task is very different, I'll tell you a funny story that both of you will appreciate. I interviewed to be CEO at a health system, both of you know very, very well. And when I went in there, I went in with what I thought was a winning strategy. Our goal is to shrink our revenues over the next 10 years. And we'll do that because we'll have a healthier population. And obviously, it was a losing strategy. Because the people on the boards of these organizations are like, hey, I run a hat company, I run a bank, I run a local investment firm. And in none of those other sectors is lower revenues like a sought after goal. But I will tell you, like that's what we should be talking about at healthcare is actually making things smaller. And I would say the value-based care movement has largely been, I think, has obfuscated the fact that everyone wants to redistribute funds, but no one wants to shrink the total pie. And that's a real challenge that we have to kind of contend with. And so part of it is we don't even have real conversations about shrinking our healthcare economy. There's not a conference I go to, not a meeting I go to, where people are like, how do we get smaller and more profitable? Like that's actually the conversation that people should be having. But instead, everyone's constantly talking about how do we get bigger and just grow our share and then complain about everything. Every single sector of healthcare has some big complaint about regulation, and other sectors of healthcare. And I'll tell you, the one that I think gets a lot of flack in some ways unfairly is, frankly, the pharmaceutical industry because they actually, at a minimum, they can say that they've solved problems that were previously insoluble. What can the rest of us say? (laughs) So, you know, I think that there's a real challenge that we have to kind of contend with. And I say this with no major financial interest in any pharmaceutical companies, like maybe a hundred shares of Merck and hundred shares of Vertex, full disclosure, nothing material in the grand scheme of my life. But what I can tell you is that these are the big conversations that are not happening that need to be happening. Sachin, can you deepen one avenue here before we have to close? It's about
1: clinicians and especially physicians. Both physicians and nurses are on their heels, it seems nationally right now, in terms of morale. We've got a lot of pretty ominous stuff being reported about burnout Meanwhile, the structure of the physician workforce is changing. Now, I believe the largest employer of uh, physicians is Optum, a a subsidiary of United. So we're seeing more and more, I guess, concerned people would call it proletarianization or something of the physician workforce. On the other hand, as you know, I worked in an HMO my whole career on salary, and it was a great place to work. What's your feeling about the direction of travel here with respect to the, let's say, the physician workforce? I'm not insensitive to the crucial role of nurses, of course, but yeah,
2: I, what you, I would what's say, happening and what do you think of it? So I would say a couple of things. I would say more and more people feel invisible. I mean, everywhere I go and everywhere I kind of engage with people, the thing that physicians had 20, 30, 40 years ago that they don't have anymore is a sense of presence and visibility in their organizations. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with actually the size and scale. You know, if you were a physician at the Faulkner Hospital, you to use a common reference point, you know, place where we train, everyone knew each other. And if you needed something to get done for your patients or for yourself, you just, there was a one or two people you would call and you could get it done for your patients. Now, if you're part of a big mega system where you're just one of 20 or 30 or 50,000 employees, you just don't matter as much to anybody actually. And I think that there's a sense of loss of purpose and belonging and conviction in your work when you're just a cog in a big machine, as opposed to you know, a significant player in a reasonably sized entity. So I think the two forces are actually closely connected. I struggle with the workforce shortages conversation, Don, because I think we haven't taken a hard look at who does what in American healthcare. And there's all kinds of latent talent pools I look at pharmacists. When I led Caremore Health, some of my favorite people that I got to work with every day were the pharmacists. They were creative. They were, in some cases, visionary. They were really focused on affordability for our patients. And they could do a lot of great clinical work on behalf of patients. We just haven't empowered them to do it. Too many of them are stuck behind counters at retail stores around the country, not necessarily practicing true pharmacy medicine. And so... Again, I think that there's opportunities for us to make jobs better. And, you know, it's funny, we've started four new clinical entities in the last year. And people have said, oh, well, where are you going to get the doctors to work at these clinical entities? And I said, you know, just have you talked to any doctors recently? They Most of them hate where they work. So if we create a great place for them to work and give them meaningful work to do, we're going to have our share. We'll have an unlimited supply of, of clinicians. And that's largely borne out. I mean, we have people knocking on our door to come work at our various entities because, People are unhappy being a cog in the machine at different large medical groups. So I think we have real opportunities to reset the culture of medicine. And you know, frankly, Don, it's back to the future. It's like, let's go back to a time when these were honored professionals who were rewarded for their professionalism and not necessarily treated like day laborers, which is largely, I think, how a lot of people feel these days. They have to produce a certain number of widgets in order to kind of make their numbers In order to be seen as positive employees within their organizations with very little regard to the quality of the widgets that they're actually producing and little recognition for the quality of the widgets. You know, we had Doctor's Day the other day, a couple of weeks ago, and I was I had such mixed feelings about it because I'm like, what's the message that we're sending about the profession that we have to have a day? Like every other kind of professional line has a day. And, you know, is there some erosion of professionalism that's actually Embedded in having Doctor's Day, and most of the doctors I had dinner with, on um, doctors, they actually agree with me on this. They said, and there's so many health systems that provided little tchotchkes to doctors in recognition or appreciation of their work during COVID or during the last year. And again, and while those are well-intentioned gestures, I think they actually erode people's professionalism because most of us didn't do the work that we're doing. We didn't train for 10, 15, 20 years to get a tchotchke. At the end of the day, we did it so that we could feel like we were actually empowered to make a difference. And I think that word empowerment is the missing conversation piece.
0: Sajan, you've covered a lot of ground in the last half an hour, 40 minutes or so, but, and it's been all uh, in a wide ranging series of topics. You've kind of laid out for us a number of things that are potentially problematic, potentially challenging us. Also, there's some rays of hope in here uh, about what SCAN's doing, about what you're working on, ideas about leadership in the future, about professionalism. We like to close this podcast series with a single question that we've been asking everyone who's been on the program about whether you're optimistic about the future or feel pessimistic about the future. Where do you land on the optimism? I'm, the I'm super
2: optimistic. I'll tell you why. I think that there's the optimism lies in, I think, the people who are electing to enter the profession, the clear-eyed view that they have that they're not entering a perfect profession they're entering one that they want to fix in service of others. And I meet so many young people every day who I think know that American healthcare needs help and they want to help it. And I think it goes back to the leadership crisis. If we can have some people who think about things the right way in positions of power and influence in the healthcare system, I think it'll get better a lot faster than people think. So that's really where my optimism comes from. Is and so my focus is on trying to support the lives and careers of people who want to make a positive difference in the same way that Don, you supported me and KDR in an earlier stage of our careers. We're all doing our best because of some of the lessons and inspiration you gave us back in the day. And hopefully we'll continue to honor you.
0: Well, Sachin, we thank you so much for your uh time here today. Uh Sachin Jane, CEO of Scan Health Plan. Thank you for being with us here on Turn on the Lights. Thanks so much. Don, that was an exciting conversation with Sachin. As always, I think all of us are you more convinced by uh, Ma now having heard that, or not so much?
1: I mean, Sachin's a real, um, a real bright light in the healthcare scene, and he's trying to do, I think, the right thing at SCAN. I worry that uh, he doesn't represent the core of the MA industry. And I think he feels that too. He was really arguing for some pretty big changes in the rules under which Medicare Advantage operates. So I remain a skeptic.
0: What portion of the MA market do you think looks like SCAN versus something else? I guess that's a question for your next article with uh, Rick. Uh, I think you'll fill in and colleagues. <laughs>
1: well, I know mean, there must be a number if you mean not for profit with a kind of heritage of true investment in well-being of patients and with the kind of clinical leadership. Remember, Sachin is a doctor and there's a SEDSEN scan as there is in a number of other organizations like SCAN to really kind of focus on needs of patients, not on the needs of stockholders. And he was pretty harsh on venture capital and private equity. So I fear the number, the percentage of beneficiaries in Medicare Advantage that benefit from the kind of ethos he was talking about is relatively low. But that's shooting from the hip. We should, we should try to find out.
0: Yeah, there's got to be something empirical about that just to learn about what it really looks like. It was interesting to think about how small the MA market was not many years ago and how massive it's grown. It's somewhat predictable on some level. You offer people benefits like vision, oral, dental, audiology, et cetera. People wouldn't vote with their feet on it. And so it kind of makes sense why it's grown so massively over time. And if you can make money doing that, it makes sense that it would have grown.
1: Yeah. I mean, in one of the papers I wrote, I wrote, well, if there are two ice cream trucks and one is giving away ice cream free and the other's not, guess where the customers are going to go. That's and- right. That proves the ice cream is free, not better. So the whole dynamic in Medicare Advantage, it may help some members in Medicare Advantage who are getting the kind of breaks that such is talking about. But But help
0: me understand this. If you're getting glasses, uh, dental care, and ear hearing aids for free or whatever, bundled into the cost of your plan, why wouldn't that be better on some level? Like, isn't that a better outcome to begin with? There may be other things that are less good.
1: There are two questions about better. First, better for the individual patient. In some dimensions, yes, out-of-pocket costs initially lower, yeah. although there may be downstream costs that are not factored into with the advertised premiums. In terms of benefits, like, do you really take advantage of the benefits? And a lot of, quote, benefits, the Medicare Advantage space, actually, people aren't using. Yeah, so, aren't you know, yes, I think that there are some advantages to individuals who care about it. He, he mentioned that the, his members are happy with the plan. They are giving up choice, and I would not join Medicare Advantage because of that. That's the one decisional feature for me. If I want to go to Mayo Clinic or UCSF or someplace where I know there's the best specialist for what I have, I want to go there. And if I'm in traditional Medicare, I can, and it'll be covered. And if I'm in Medicare Advantage, I can't because it'll be a restricted network. That's just me. Other people are more willing to make the deal and say, well, I'll give up choice, and maybe you've got my back. Such claims that he's got the members' backs because the places he's actually contracting with are very high-quality providers. Actually, the overall pattern for that Medicare Advantage is not so clear. In fact, some of the MedPAC studies have shown that not to be the case, that there be... Now, you're the, talking about the
0: MA writ large, not writ large, any particular not plan, but the whole the whole
1: of point point view view, the individual, some good news is some bad news. For me, the bad news is bad enough. I don't want to be under that kind of level of control. I am suspicious that a lot of MA plans are making deals with providers mm-hmm. and restricting networks based on only on price, not on anything resembling actual quality of care. Second is the social view, which is the individual patient. You're right about that choice, but this subsidy to Medicare advantage in the form of high payments, coding games where you upcode the patient to make them look sick or even though they're not, this amounts to a massive transfer of money to the MH plans. Well, that money's coming from somewhere. I'll tell you where it's coming from. Taxpayers, Traditional Medicare beneficiaries. The,
0: the Medicare fund, right? I mean, the Medicare, Medicare
1: fund. So yeah. it's kind of unfair. I mean, if you really felt it was so great, why wouldn't you give it all Medicare beneficiaries? I suppose
0: that may be the other argument, right? Which is why not make hearing aids, vision benefits, and dental health care something that every Medicare beneficiary has the pleasure of enjoying, regardless of whether you're in an MA plan or not?
1: Exactly. That bill in Congress has been there many times to extend. That's right. It costs a number of tens of billions of dollars. On the other hand, if it's so important, and I think it is important, you know, the dental problems in a frail elder oh, are, yeah. no,
0: Absolutely. They
1: are really serious, including people in nursing homes. And right well, now they don't have coverage for that.
0: What do you make of the other, I think another theme in what Suchin was describing was counteracting the trend towards more and more consolidation. He seemed to be making the argument for keeping it local, keeping it smaller making it less national on some levels. What did you make of that story? I mean, that seemed like another major theme in what he was offering.
1: Very credible theme. And Stan has been pretty local for much of its history. We also have the Association of Community Health Plans, which is the, it's kind of the small plan association of plans that have Medicare Advantage. They behave yeah. differently from these big four or five. The big four or five, grow: United, Aetna, Cigna, um, Humana, They're taking over. They really are dominating. But if you go into the fine structure here and you look for smaller clans that are more local and regionally based, I would venture to say they are sounding a little more like Sachin. They care about their communities. Many are nonprofit, And there is a segment in there that is communitarian. They're actually not the big beneficiaries of the coding games. The big ones, Humana, United, they're so good at upcoding that they're kind of eating lunch of the smaller plans that are trying to stay local. So there is absolutely a story there. And maybe in one of our shows, we might want to have another person from a local plan talk about MA from the viewpoint of a community instead of from the viewpoint of a bunch of stockholders.
0: Well, it does seem like there is maybe in that a potential solution to the MA problem, which is look at some of these local regional smaller plans that kind of communitarian focus and that that do have a tendency to at least know their beneficiaries in a very different kind of way, as well as know their provider networks in a very different kind of way. I also like the orientation towards outcomes. I think that was an important aspect of this. It's not just about benefit design and manipulating networks, but it's also about what are we buying here? Are we buying actually better health in the end?
1: That would be the big move in payment is toward outcomes. Of course, that gets harder because you need to adjust outcomes according to severity. If I've taken care of sicker patients than you, of course, my outcomes will be worse. Now, with all the coding game games going on, which obscure how sick people reach really are, when you try to do research or measurement to figure out who has better outcomes, you don't you don't have a moving platform of severity. So it gets pretty wonky pretty fast. But I think the general idea of buying health instead of activity is a pretty darn good one. And the smart. And community-oriented plans would, in fact, do that. I fear that the drive toward large plan growth, the profit margins, the value of gaming right now is just driving that more essential part of what why we're here off the screen.
0: Well, lots to think about. As always, wonderful to have the opportunity to chat through this with you, Don, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand.
0: To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.